Key Aero, your aviation destination. Historic Aviation. Hello and uh, welcome to the Fly Pass Podcast. For this episode, we're joined by Ian Flint from Stomari's Great War Aerodrome near Malden in Essex. Thank you for joining us. No, no, it's great to be here. It's great to be here. Excellent. So a lot of listeners will know the name Stomari's, but they might not know exactly what it is. So maybe that's a good place to start. You know, Yeah, I think is- so. I think so. Yeah. If I had a penny for as many times I'd heard the phrase hidden gem in the last couple of years, I'd be a very rich man. And uh, it has to be said, we're doing everything we can to take away the word hidden from that description. Stomari's Great War Aerodrome, as it is now, was Stomari's RFC Stomari's or RAF Stomari's, depending on what time you are. But it's a really interesting story. And uh, museums are all about stories. We are a museum. We're a heritage site. And so the story I find fascinating. It was um, things really kicked off, to be honest with you, back in 1909 when uh, a chap called Turner decided he wanted to purchase some land in Essex to farm it. And the Turner family were very successful. They bought a patch of land between Maldon and Chelmsford and uh, just outside the village of Stomaris and Cold Norton and these little villages called Purley. And it really is in a beautiful part of Essex and not being an Essex resident myself, when I moved in there, it really is. It's a challenge to the stereotypes of what one sees and thinks when one hears the word Essex. Everything was going swimmingly until uh, a couple of years after that, about five years after that, some things started going awfully wrong on the continent. And uh, by that time, the idea of using air power was in its infancy, but it was very much being grasped with both hands by different parts of the world. Within the UK, the Royal Navy really had a good grip of it. The army were not so keen and impressed. The German Navy were very much into it. And uh, at this time, it's mostly airships. There was fixed wing flight, powered flight, but it was mostly airships. And in fact, when World War I broke out, there was, by that time, a regular passenger run by airship from Campagne in Paris to London. So airships were nothing new. You know, it was something that people were getting used to. Well, Stomaris comes into the story very early on, really, because the German Navy, a particular admiral, who I won't bore you with trying to pronounce his name in German, a particular admiral said, whatever happens, we really must bomb London with airships the moment the war starts, because we'll beat them psychologically, and that way they'll give in. See if that story sounds vaguely familiar, you know. Um, And he did so. He tried to do it straight away. Now, the Zeppelins had been funded vigorously by the Kaiser, since 1909-1910. He'd been over to the UK to watch his family members practicing at Soldiers in Norfolk and seen a fantastic large-scale exhibition where the winning side, if you will, on this big battle exercise had been one that had employed balloons for spotting and fixed-wing aircraft for artillery reconnaissance and all that sort of stuff. So he was very much keyed into air power and therefore quite happily signed all the checks to make sure that Zeppelins were sent over to the UK to bomb them. This didn't work out so well. They weren't particularly accurate to start with. And while they were not particularly accurate in their damage, shall we say, physical, as was expected, the psychological damage was huge. People were terrified. They really were very worried about these things. The Royal Navy had been tasked with defending the shores of this country, and that naturally elevated itself, if excuse the pun, into the aviation sphere. But uh, it became very clear very quickly that the Royal Navy, for all of their investiture physical and investiture financial in air power, they simply did not have the resources to protect the home capital as well as the shores and the sea lanes and everything else. And to bring this into perspective, it hadn't been for the the funds that the Navy were plumbing into aviation at this time. Sopwith would never have got off the ground, the famous Sopwith Camel, 
roughly, if you look at how many types Sopwith put out during World War One, they were publishing, as it were, they were losing a new type of aircraft on average every six weeks. And I don't mean a new model, I mean a new type. They really were incredibly prolific. And that was largely due to the fact that the Royal Navy plumbed massive amounts of money into them. So for the Navy to admit they couldn't protect, they didn't have the resources to protect the capital, was a huge step. The Army stood up and took it back, whether they liked it or not. <laughs> and uh, they said, okay, what we need to do is we need to establish a number of rings of defence and uh, we'll need aircraft to fly from them. And so around 1916, they started looking for landing sites and areas they could use for aerodromes to defend the capital and the various high-quality targets that the Germans were targeting. Stomaris came up, second highest point in Essex, and uh, promptly the war office walked in there and said to Mr Turner, thank you very much indeed, we are buying a large section of your farm behind your farmhouse here's how much we're paying for it, and this is where you say thank you very much because there's a war on, don't you know? And that's kind of the way it went. They purchased a large section of the Turner family farm. They also purchased a large section of the Evans family farm, which was further across from where our place is now in proper. And they sent in the Royal Engineers to start building an aerodrome, as it were. Now, I think it's important to know at this point that an aerodrome, not only in these days was grass, there was no strips, it wasn't even grass runways. It was just a simple, flat, roughly circular piece of ground, aerodrome, drome being circular, obviously hippodrome, velodrome, et cetera, et cetera. And the reason it was like that is because what you do is you put a, a windsock on each cardinal point, north, south, east, west. And whenever you want to take off or land, you take off or land into the wind. And that gives you extra lift or extra drive, if you will, thrust for one of the better. And that's that area, the original aerodrome now spreads onto out of Stomari's Great War Aerodrome into what is now the Fleming farm. More to come on that in a little while. Anyway, so first people that rolled into Stomaris were B-flight of 37 Squadron Royal Flying Corps. And these were a specific home defence squadron. In fact, it was 37 HD, 37 Home Defence Squadron. And they were flying B-2Es, four of them, living in canvas tents and uh, with a big white canvas hangar, Bessano hangar. The robust nature of these aircraft when considered at the time can't really be put into accurate terms for modern day because what was robust then, we wouldn't even think about calling even as high up as delicate nowadays. You know, an eight-knot crosswind will flip a B2E on its back. It's that light and that delicate. There are no brakes. There's a very rudimentary throttle control, but basically it's red line or off. That's pretty much it. You're looking at a complete engine strip and rebuild every 100 hours. There was no, like I say, there's no tailwheel. It was a skid. And while it was first flew in 1913-14 as a very stable aircraft designed for artillery reconnaissance and stuff like that, the idea of it galloping up to defend the home counties and the capital against incoming Zeppelins was a bit of a mistake, really. It was a very stable aircraft, but that meant slow and difficult, or rather very slow to turn. A lovely aircraft. In fact, one of my favorite aircraft, a very beautiful aircraft in its functionality, but still not what one could call a rake-trimmed, fast-moving aircraft. It took 45 minutes to get to operational height. They couldn't fly as fast as Zeppelins, and armaments was somewhat of an afterthought. There's only one particular place you can mount a Lewis gun firing .303 on a BE-2E, and that gives you about a one-metre-square aperture of fire to one side of the propeller in front of the wings, just to the left of the wires, below the top wing. You know, I mean, it the only way you could get it, and they worked out this, was to try and catch up with the Zeppelin and dive on it 
And if you got one past, you were lucky. You had to get ahead of it. So things started rolling. I'd say first operational flights, 17, 18. Very quickly, the Royal Engineers made heady progress after a winter in canvas tents, a very cold winter. And I can tell you that because winters in Essex on the height of the blowy Essex aerodrome, they are quite chilly. I can tell you that categorically. So after that, they kind of really got into gear and started building wooden huts that were then replaced with brick huts. And uh, by the close of hostilities, obviously, we've seen over the formation of the RAF in April the 1st, 1918. By the close of hostilities in November 18, there were in excess of 250, 300 people living on site. There were all four squadrons and an HQ squadron of 37 squadron on site. So they're, you know, 36 to 50 aircraft, depending on what we're talking about, operational aircraft, trainer aircraft, all that sort of stuff. We'd had a number of guys of note come through and fly with 37. The other aerodromes that were attached to us as part of our family were Goldhanger and Rochford. Goldhanger, now farmland. Rochford, now Southend International Airport. And generally, it had an exciting time. It had successes. We did lose guys. I think it says a lot that there was only two of our pilots and crew that were lost to enemy action. The other eight were in flying accidents. It just says exactly how rudimentary the flight was at that time. And uh, if you look at the timeline of the development of early flight, really, 1916 is no time to really be enjoying learning how to write the book on how to fly, and especially not in action. Uh, it's an incredible place, but the story there is is very myriad, very myriad indeed. That's excellent. I mean, as you say, it's C pants flying, isn't it? It's making it up as you go along, and you can't even comprehend that these days absolutely not i mean the the idea of training and raf cranwell the raf as it became training station even at raf cranwell where they were learning how to fly it was still very much you sit on my lap we take off we land we take off we land we take off we land right you're on your own off you go and 55 percent of the casualties of the royal flying corps which lived up until april 1st 1918 55 percent of the casualties were due to flying accidents there was nothing to do with enemy action and it has to be said that the, the, the somewhat and I use the term politely, the somewhat cavalier aspect, that flying by the seat of your pants, that what ho back in time for tea and medals, this whole kind of idea was to a certain extent necessary. You know, it's a shame that we think always of the aces. We think of the aces that were really propaganda items. But even the fun, some of the fantastic aces, they weren't technically superior tacticians. They weren't necessarily strategic flyers. And to that end, those sort of people do not make good instructors. And this is where Germany were above us. They did very well. Their pilots were strategic, they were tactical, and they were good teachers because of that. So therefore, they had a better grounding. It's an arguable point. I don't doubt anyone listening to this is now, there's people out there shouting at the at the podcast, uh, screaming and saying, how could you possibly say that? But if we look into the detail of it, even some of our best aces, Actually, they were somewhat madcap, and the, the, the way they were attacking and, and gaining their victories and ace status, in fact, was pretty much non-sustainable. You know, was, there's only so many times you can gallop headlong into a squadron of German fighters and come out the other side not dead. You know, there's only it's so the nature of flying it required in those early days that certain seat of the pants. And if we didn't have those people, I'm not suggesting for a moment that we'd have had the success we did. But uh, the lucky thing for us is we also had a great tradition in the various elements of engineering and skill set crafts that were required at that time to turn out good aircraft. We had fantastic engineers. We had really, really good coach builders, coach work builders, you know, 
we had scientists, we had the golden age of Victorian science and engineering that led into the Edwardian age of, of development, really did feed some fantastic generative work with our aircraft. And that's where we were doing really, really well. We were ready to experiment. We had the resources. We were blockading Germany. They didn't have as many resources. And so we had some fantastic aircraft. I mean, yeah, we had some dogs, but we had some really good aircraft. The way I always look at it, I'm trying to be sensitive how I say this because it's within living memory. But when we think about the terrible tragedies that occurred when British Armed Forces went into the first Afghan campaigns in recent years, we went in there with uh, transport of, along the lines of Mark V Bedford trucks and snatched Land Rovers and all this sort of stuff. And they very, very quickly fell prey to the sort of explosive devices, IEDs that are now in commonplace terminology. These lightweight vehicles, these slow moving vehicles, these lightly armored vehicles. But we came out of the Afghan campaign with vehicles like Mastiff and Jackal, and these are the finest all terrain fleet vehicle fleet in the world, bar none, it's, it's widely acknowledged. And I sensitively and with delicacy I draw parallels to the, the Great War aviation. We went in with BE-2s, you know, and we did everything we possibly could. The BE-2 or the BE program was pretty much like the 66 World Cup team. We did everything we possibly could to it to make sure we didn't have to invent another one, you know. The various different models, take a cockpit out, put another fuel tank in, do this, do that, anything we could. While we were desperately trying to get other types up to speed. We went in with that. We came out with things like the Sopwith Snipe, with uh, Mr. Bentley's masterpiece engine in it. You know, a constant bleed, 22-litre, amazing thing. The Snipe was pretty much the epitome of the, the fast attack aircraft. And it was at the very limits of what you could do with that fuselage, as had been noted by various medal winners that I'm not going to bore anyone with, but who, because you always flew loaded up and fully fueled, so you had weaponry and fuel, when you were ferrying aircraft back in, there's one particular fantastic story where a chap decided to take one quick last look at the front before he flew home and bagged himself four German aircraft before he flew home. You know, that, that's the sort of quality of the aircraft we came out of the Great War with. And it's a terrible shame, really, that because of all that skill, including experimental work, top secret experimental work on things like wireless telegraphy, various things like flash hiders and stuff like that, all this sort of stuff that was really really genesis was at Stomari's and its sister stations. When fighter operations were centralized at Biggin Hill in 1919, they took a load of our guys and girls, mobile, or in this case, mobile uh, WAFs as they were, meaning they were attached to the squadron, not the base. We took those and a load of serving members of the squadron, took them down to Biggin Hill, downloaded their brain, and used it to set up Biggin Hill, and then slammed a padlock on Stomari's and put it to sleep. And that was the end of that, really. Yeah, because that, that was one of the things that I found a bit fascinating about Stomar is that it's got no Second World War history at all. And as you say, it's in prime piece of real estate, you know, to defend the capital. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it is interesting. But there, once you get into it, it actually becomes more obvious. It had, I suppose, one could say two and a half incursions. And we'll deal with the easy one first, the, the, the half. The Americans did look at Stomaris as a possible base. But... Uh, the enlightened times that they were living at the time, it was going to be too expensive, too difficult, and too challenging to turn it into a modern airbase. By that, I mean give it a huge runway. The main reason being the length of runway they would need to achieve standard runway lengths for the Second World War and concrete it up. At one end, it kind of there's a, a sharp drop that is great assistance if you've got kind of a low wind day and you're going that way because you don't have to actually pull up. You just literally try and keep flying straight and level and the ground drops way below. 
ideal for early aircraft. That's one end. And the other end is the Turner farmhouse. And if you try and direct it between other angles, you're crossing over roads and rivers and various other landscape obstacles. So it became very clear that you couldn't fit one in and it was going to be a nightmare to try and fit one in. And even though it's one of the best drained fields in the UK, that is actually relatively modern, the draining. And and that's been done relatively recently. So it wasn't an ideal place. So that's the half, as it were. The other two were somewhat, somewhat more dramatic. We had Crowley Milling, who was one of Barda's team, as it were, flying out Spitfires and stuff. He was fighting over Kent in the Battle of Britain, and uh, he took a rather unfortunate hit to the fuel pump on his aircraft and uh, trying desperately to get back to Duxford. Only made it as far as Stomari, saw it from above and went, that'll do nicely, and managed, Lord only knows how, uh, it was a hurricane, sorry, not Spitfire, but how on earth he did, he managed to get it in and land. And... Uh, well, yes, hopped out and went to the nearby Searchlight Squadron, which is still located at a place still known as Searchlight Corner to all of us, and got them to phone up and have his aircraft picked up, which they duly did. You know, popped it on the back of a truck because there was no way it was getting off the ground. So they popped it in the back of a truck and took it away. Not before, I might add, a number of local chaps managed to get into the Hurricane and, and loose off a few rounds from the Brownings. And we have the shell cases. We believe we have the shell cases from that that were donated to us. So that's one of the incursions. The other one is unfortunately a little bit more messy. And that was where a German bomber, we believe it was a Dornier, was on the way back from a run, spied Stomais from above. And at this time, there's all the buildings that were there. There were a number of wooden huts, but there were also a number of large hangars. They may have been filled with cattle because Farmer Turner bought it back from the war office at a rather inflated price, but he was farming it again. And so therefore, the, the airfield was largely meadowland and the cattle were roaming through the hangars. The Dornier spotted those and dropped a stick. He took out the back end of some of the RE workshops, which were since repaired. He took out the front walls of the Blacksmith Forge, which were since repaired. He took out half of the comms building, Building 5, which we have not repaired. We have not put it back because it has been uh, made safe in its present condition and is now an exhibition space. But he rather did rather terminally take out our hangars, largest barbecue you ever saw, I'm sure. But either way, the hangars are gone. And that was the only incursions the Second World War had on Stomaris. Yeah, that was that. How much is the actual original airfield left then? Because obviously a lot of the Second World War airfields have gone. So the fact there's anything left from the First World War is quite amazing. Well, it is, isn't it? Especially when they were designed to be thrown up for five minutes. They literally were in a minute last five years. And I'm not going to use the old quote about Christmas, but you get the idea. Yeah, there are 23 extant buildings left. There are none of the wooden huts. They're all gone, but we can replace those easy enough. There are no hangars left of the original ones. We have two hangars at the moment. They are temporary in kind of look, if you will, but they are permanent structures, so they're fine. Of the buildings we have, they're all two-star listed. There are a couple that unfortunately didn't survive, so there are some that are partially collapsed or fully collapsed, but there are 23 extant, and that includes a variety of unique ones. It is the largest RFC building collection in the world. So there are more in Stowe than there are anywhere else in one place. And that includes a couple of very unique ones. So to our knowledge and to our researches, <laughs> and Lord knows we've got researchers, Building 33, which is an officer's accommodation block, is the only one we can find in the world that's still got its interior cabins in there. 32 and 31, the other two officers' accommodation block were never really completed. They're just the outside shells and stuff like that. But they've been stabilised. Building 33 has been stabilised with the original cabins inside. The Officer's Mess, which would have been a four-star hotel in its day, Building 34, that's there, it's extant, it's all fine. We've glazed it, we've put new roof on it, and in time, that's being worked on as part of a long-term plan. 
we are doing really good work on all of the buildings. They're all on the at-risk register. The at-risk register is a fantastic way of highlighting these impressive and important structures across the UK that we really need to be aware of. That If we don't act on them soon, they're going to fall down. Well, the way it works is actually the site itself is on the at-risk register. So until all of our buildings are considered no longer at risk, then the site remains, which I have to say, from our point of view, is exactly what it should be. Because, you know, by the time we get building A done, building Z may need more work. So it's kind of a, a painting the Sydney Harbour Bridge principle at the moment. It really is an ongoing thing. The site itself is 93 acres in size. We have an extensive ecological agenda that goes alongside our built fabric agenda, because amongst that 93 acres, we've got 13 different natural England conservation areas. And they are home to a variety of owl species, 23 red band rare bird species. We have all sorts of endangered species that I'm not going to go into, but uh, they're all there. And we have a fantastic tradition of wildlife photography and filming at the site that we do under very, very strict security and very, very careful controls. Because although 93 acres does sound like a lot, actually, in wildlife habitat, that isn't a great deal. So we have to take care of it really carefully. And we always balance our ecological agenda with our built fabric agenda. It's a complicated one, but we do it. So how did it come about then, the switch from being like a you know, deserted aerodrome and farmland into what it is now? How did that happen? Okay, so the Turner family bought the land back, as I mentioned earlier. They bought it back from the war office at a highly inflated price, something like twice that he was paid for it, which is rather unfortunate. And the way that he funded that, so I understand, is that he cut down all the oak he could find on his other land, which was at a premium at that point. And after securing it, he suddenly realised that, wow, he's got all these outbuildings. He can use those. He's got farmers' labourers' accommodation. And while it sounds kind of criminal, he actually converted a number of the buildings into accommodation for his workers and his vehicles as they became more and more prevalent. Bearing in mind that by the time the war closed, we had everything from trucks, tenders, motorbikes, cars, and all sorts. So there was plenty of garage space. Yeah, and he, he, he farmed it very happily, very happily, until his son, Hugh, to, in 2004 decided that enough was enough. He didn't want to farm it anymore. And uh, he stopped farming in 2004. It went up for sale as a land area in 2008. Now, there was uh, some very avid, enthusiastic supporters of history and heritage in the nearby village of Stomaris. And that included a professionally trained archivist, a lovely lady called Beryl Broad. Her husband was a navigator on Lancaster during the Second World War. And there was the, uh, a local policeman called Ivor and uh, various others that were really keen and known about the aerodrome for some time. And so they kind of canvassed and had a conservation order slapped on it straight away, at which point half the people that were looking to buy this lovely flat green area <laughs> with a load of old buildings on it, uh, and you can imagine well, the sort of things that were able to be built on it, as we all do know, airfield land is perfect for so many things. But once you've got a conservation order on it saying you can't touch anything, suddenly everything fell away and no one was interested in buying. And simultaneously, there was a chap that was looking for a home for a business idea he had. And that was a performance engine workshop. He, by sheer chance, was flying regularly, a very wealthy gentleman, backwards and forwards to Ireland. And a conversation went from A to B, B to C, C to D. And next thing you know, the very wealthy chap, a chap by the name of Mr. Wilson, has purchased Stomaris with a view to uh, uh, doing some renovation work on one or two of the buildings to enable his tenant to come in and run his own performance engine workshop. And it went really, really well. The business partnership lasted for about four years. 
And at that time, there was a number of things that meant Mr. Wilson decided he wanted to move it on. But also by that time, the tenant had become very much enamored with the place. And I can totally understand how that comes about. I'll tell you more about that in a little while. You tend to, it gets under your skin. And he suddenly realized what was there. And he campaigned with various people to try and get the money to buy it because Mr. Wilson put up for sale and he wasn't really looking to make a huge amount on it. He just wanted to move it on, you know. Thankfully, the tenant managed to get in front of a local county councillor, a cabinet minister, who then got in front of a finance director who very quickly, shortly afterwards, became deputy leader. And between them, they campaigned to get the Heritage Memorial Fund to put some money up, which they did. They put up $1.5 million. With that in hand, it wasn't as much challenge as it could have been to raise a further 300000 from local and district council loans to affect the purchase. And that was secured. Lovely. Happy days. And that was in late 2013-14. Yes, late 2013 into 2014. And they kind of bumped along along the bottom there with very little money for that time, trying desperately to work out how on earth they were going to do things. And then... Coming up to 2016, in 2015, George Osborne was looking for ways to support the commemorations of the Great War with money from the LIBOR fund, our friends fixing the interest rates, fined heavily, and suddenly there's a big bag of cash here. And it was decided very quickly it needed to go to worthy causes. So uh, the idea, okay, well, what we'll do, the naval battle, there's Jutland. We'll do something in Northern Scotland about Jutland, the Battle of Jutland. That'll commemorate the naval campaign. The land campaign, well, that's not difficult. We can find things in France and in England to cover that with, loads of things. They're not a problem. But he couldn't think of what to do about the air campaign. So he called in the people who had offices on his left and his right, which just happened to be Pretty Patel, who was the MP for Whittam, and John Whittingdale, who was the MP of Malden. <laughs> Both very good friends of the chair at that time of Stomari's Great War Aerodrome Trust, a gentleman by the name of Peter Martin, who was that time uh, just stopped being the leader of Essex County Council. And they said, well, funny you should mention that. We know a place that really needs a hand. And thankfully, it came through. And there was a £1.5 million award from the LIBOR Fund that really gave the trust energy. It gave the trust the means to actually put some thinking into place. The way I put it is, at that point, they started looking for somebody who could possibly take a lead and had a bit of experience, who knew what he was doing. And I always say the same thing. They couldn't find anyone, so they found me instead. Um and I, I, I've got a background in property management with uh, English Heritage Trust with uh, significant properties in the capital. And I've got a background in National Trust, but also in museum services. I've always mixed my curatorial knowledge and my historian, shall we say, academics with on the ground facilities and practicalities. And uh, in the heritage community, that's generally two sides of the fence. You know, you, you have to have someone who will translate the curatorial and academic into the people that are rebuilding it. Or, you know, I know how to very carefully conserve a painting, but ask me to rewire a plug and you've got no chance. That sort of thing. It always presents a challenge. And luckily, I've been very lucky that I've had a number of different roles where those things cross over for me. So I've got a rough idea how to do both. And that seemed to work well. So we had a chat and uh, boom, things kicked off for me in May 2016. And we haven't really stopped since, to be honest with you. <laughs> we have, um, we've invested nearly a, a million pounds in the buildings with a mixture of fundraising and our own reserves. We've got a number of them in the state to come off the at-risk register. We've got four permanent exhibitions covering everything from the early days of the Royal Flying Corps right the way through to the way that ladies contributed. And everyone always thinks the same, munitionettes and nurses and 
well, hang on, what about the spies? What about the engineers? What about the drivers? What about all the other things they did? Post offices were, you know, manned by women, female police officers. They all came about because of the Great War. And no one ever mentions that. Some of the greatest tragedies of the Great War could have actually been avoided if uh, certain governments on the continent would have listened to the spies that they were being informed by that they discounted because they were female. You know, so one of our exhibitions covers all that. We've got another exhibition about the people that actually served at 37 Squad on our home defence. That's a really popular one there. And we've got a lovely exhibition about Saint-Omer, which was a huge town and airbase in the Great War in France. And to put it into context, it's kind of Bryce Norton plus plus. So when we think about Bryce Norton, when we see about military airfields, or even, to be honest with you, even Camp Bastion in modern recent news, it is a huge, huge place. And it was such a huge place with everything from forming squadrons from scratch through to getting the aircraft in, building them, repairing them, running operations from it, that when in the Second World War, it was still active. And when it fell to the Germans, the Germans ran it for their entire occupation. And we just moved back in again when they were driven out of France. So we've got a lovely exhibition about Saint-Omer and our connections. And we've got a very close connection with Saint-Omer. We, we always do go over and see them because they're very much proud of their connection to, to the RAF, the early RFC and that period. But the site itself is quite a hive of activity now. We've got a Queen's Award-winning volunteer programme, which goes from 15 years of age through to, uh, I'll be more polite here, through to, shall we say, the rather mature. Um, And the volunteering is very, very popular, and our volunteers are in every part of our organisation. I can say now, and uh, from the heady heights of the Chief Executive Officer's position, I couldn't do my job without our volunteers. It's, it would be physically impossible for me to actually deliver my role. Everything from our volunteer recruitment at one side across to the enterprise function with our, our mess, because we have a full cafe in the airman's mess, the welcome area where we meet and greet people, we orientate them, the area where they can buy things to take away, books and stuff, all handled by volunteers. Most of the grounds maintenance, a lot of the renovations sometimes under supervision for obvious reasons, is handled by volunteers. The air operations, the ground crews, they're all volunteers, you know, and we couldn't function without it. But when you think that one of our air events takes in anywhere between, depending on if it's a new one or if it's one we already know how to do, it's anywhere between thirty and 50,000 hours of preparation and delivery undertaken by volunteers. It's just incredible the work we get out of them. So we've got that. We have education activities going on. As I say, there's a very popular cafe. You sit down and you have something to eat and something to drink in the place where the enlisted used to sit down and do exactly the same thing. There's a thriving events program dealing with everything from full-scale air shows with classic aircraft, partnership events with places like Imperial War Museum with more modern aircraft, and even a really popular one, the Large Model Air Show, because that's 18th of September this year. And that's where these incredible large models fly. And if you haven't seen them before, these things are nearly like the size of your car. They're incredible. The only difference between it and a major air show is the fact you pilot it from the ground. But uh, some of these aircraft are small jet engines. It's just absolutely incredible. So it's, it's a really popular place, and it's good because it deserves it. It's a special place. It's got a, a stronger property story and a stronger spirit of place than many places. Personally speaking, and I've been spoiled rotten, I've worked, and with the hours we do in the heritage community, it, work equals live. So I've you know, spent huge amounts of hours working in castles, Jacobean mansions, Regency mansions, you know, surrounded by Rembrandt and Vermeer and stuff like that. So I've been really, really spoiled with places to work and live. And I've never known a place with a spirit of place as strong as Snowmaris. When you walk on there, there's something about it. 
there is something about it. If you have aircraft flying, Dan Snow, oh, there we go, name drop. Dan Snow said that rotors are the beating heart of Stomaris and you need to hear it as often as possible. And it's true. We are still restricted quite happily and gladly restricted to single engine fixed wing aircraft. Yep, we have modern aircraft. We don't just have historic aircraft, obviously. We have pilots that are resident with us, that hang out with us, and we're very glad they do because it pays the bills. But even then, single-engine fixed wing, I don't care if it's a Moth, I don't care if it's a BE-2, I don't care if it's a Cessna, that sound echoing amongst the buildings of Stomaris just adds to it. And you're in the middle of this rolling countryside that at times is so still, and especially either early morning or early evening, where the sun is hazy. Oh, it gets you, it literally, lump in the throat. We had a... um a ceremony. We have a resident living history company, and uh, we're very proud that there was quite a lot of competition to become our resident living history company. And uh, at the weekend, recently, they uh, because they couldn't get out to Mons for their usual parade, they asked if they could parade at Stowe. Now, they represent Fourth Fusiliers, and in the retreat from Mons, or the Battle of Mons, they won the first two VCs of the Great War, Private Godley and uh, Second Lieutenant Deist, and they were 4th Battalion, recruited from London and Essex. Our first station commander was a Royal Fusilier, hence the link. And they paraded in full Great War kit with a Great War padre and a last post and a, you know, all this sort of stuff. We had local air cadet, army cadets who attended as well. And I have to say, I was stood there and having the last post paid with a load of guys in First World War, absolutely supremely accurate kit and doing everything they should do and reading the role of honor and stuff like that with a padre giving a service. I'm not a religious man. But uh, there's no doubt about it that the, the hairs on the back of my neck were rising and it, it got a lump in the throat. And that's what Stomaris is about in part. It's a museum, not a mausoleum, but it's a thriving, active aerodrome with a thriving culture of volunteering and community. And it's got an incredible collection of buildings. It's got some great exhibitions with some great object collections. And it's just a place you want to be. There we go. That's a sales pitch and a half, isn't it? It's indeed. Um, and if somebody wants to come and visit, how do they find you? Have you got a website that we can Yeah, mention? yeah. yeah. Um, That's a good one. If you fancy knowing what you're getting into, then have a look on the YouTube. Stomaris on the YouTube. How old did I just sound? Stomaris Great War Aerodrome has its own YouTube channel. We have a very limited marketing budget. So social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Stomaris Great War Aerodrome, just search for it. There's a Facebook page, Facebook profile, there's Twitter, there's uh, three Twitter accounts we run, my own, plus the standard one, plus various other ones with our air operations. And Instagram, there's always great photos on our Instagram account, Stoaero. So yeah, get in touch if you want to ask, but everything from booking the venue to take advantage of our brilliant catering. Uh, the bread pudding is willing to die for, I can tell you that now. If you want to fly in on a Friday, Saturday, or a Sunday, that's not a problem. PPR, so just give us a PPR shout, not a problem at all. The number's all on the website. We'll give you a briefing. Uh, it is single engine, fixed wing, as I say. No micro lights, no jellies, no balloons, nothing like that. But that's all explained to you on the briefing. And uh, we welcome pilots. We love them. We love them to pieces. And we're becoming very popular again, which is lovely. Seeing the, the numbers fly in. Obviously, with our events, we have a lot of people who are really, really friendly and lovely and, and donate their time and their aircraft and displays to us. And uh, we have a very, very restricted number of slots for people to fly in during our events. They fly in and their aircraft rack up outside on the flight line with all of our display aircraft. So yeah, it's it's just all good really. Our patrons now, we've got Her Majesty's Lord Lieutenant of Essex, Jenny Tolhurst, a lovely lady who, she's our lead patron. 
Dan Snow is one of our patrons. Dr. Saul David, a fantastic academic and author who's a lovely chap who's done some filming with us. He's one of our patrons. Lord Peter is one of our patrons. We've got memorandums of understanding with places like the RAF Museum. We work very closely with places like Shuttleworth, RAF Museum, National Trust. So it really is one of those places that you need to go and that people need to hear about. Obviously, I'm going to say that. Uh, we love our visitors. They love coming. The books seem to say so. And uh, generally, if you live in the area, if you come once, the chances are we'll get you for volunteering there before long. You'll end up doing something with us, I guarantee it. It's a great place. Excellent. We'll definitely be visiting you at some point in the capacity of the magazine, so we'll look forward to seeing you. But thanks Absolutely. for joining us here. No worries at all. Glad to talk. This has been a podcast from Key Aero, your aviation destination. Remember, visit www.key.aero for more of the same. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to catch up with you again soon.